Oh, the heavens will condemn us for what we've wrought here today. Ah, but morality's lease has run out, and science has been given the keys to the apartment. Hi. Welcome to the Book of Nature podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. The Book of Nature podcast is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network, and today's episode is our contribution to the Christian Humanist 2017 crossover event, uh, in which all of the podcasts uh, present episodes with a common theme, and we mix and match our hosts. This year's crossover theme is the Universal Pictures Monsters, and since the Book of Nature is a science podcast, we have the pleasure of discussing the most sciency of all the Universal Monsters, Frankenstein. Joining me today are Christina Beaver Lake and Sarah Davis. Christina Beaver Lake is professor of English at Wheaton College. Uh, Christina, uh, how are things going for you way down south in Illinois? Way down south. Nobody ever says way down south in Illinois, so that's great. They do um, when we're in Canada. Fine. That's true. <laughs> Everything's fine here. We had our first little bit of snow today. Okay. All right. We're uh, gearing up for a, a solid week of snow up here. So, time to change the tires out on the minivan. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, and Sarah Davis is a research librarian at McClellan Community College in Waco, Texas. Uh, Sarah, how goes it on the banks of the Brazos? There is no snow anywhere in sight, and so I'm quite jealous. In fact, it was in the it was in the mid 80s two days ago. So uh, I don't know okay. what can you do. <laughs> you can cross but, the Brazos at Waco. That's you can, and um, it's a nice, uh, very cold fall day for us here. I think the ha- I think it's supposed to be like 56 today, so, you know, quite cold here. And <laughs> the traffic is horrible because there is a home football game in town, so ah. it took me a little extra. I had forgotten about this, and so it took me an extra little bit to, uh, to get into the office for recording. Okay. Yeah, you take the football out of Texas, you don't have Texas anymore. It is our uh, <laughs> state religion. Mm-hmm. So I've heard. Uh, and I am uh, Charles Hackney, Associate Professor of Psychology at Briarcrest College and Seminary, located in the gloomy, rugged, lightning-shattered Bavarian mountainside of Karenport, Saskatchewan. Um, <coughs> if I seem a little bit off today, listeners, I'm going to have to apologize. I just finished uh, teaching a week-long intensive course, uh, which, if uh, you haven't had the pleasure, is a full semester's worth of material crammed into four and a half days. So by the time we get to Friday afternoon, everybody's brains feel kind of like tapioca. Mm. So this should be fun. Um, if I can go off on a Mel Brooks riff, my brain is now Abby something. Abby normal, I'm pretty sure it was. Yes. <coughs> so, turning to our topic, according to Wikipedia... Uh, which, of course, is never wrong and always entirely complete. The Frankenstein monster has appeared in at least 10 stage productions, 10 radio plays, 54 movies, and I lost count, uh, going through the list of television episodes which has uh, featured this individual. These stories are based on the novel Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus, written by Mary Shelley, published in 1818. Frankenstein was first adapted as a state adapted as a stage play in 1823, uh, which is notable uh, for adding to the Frankenstein mythos. Uh, Doctor Frankenstein having a lab assistant uh, who was not named Igor or Igor, uh, and who had no trace of uh, congenital kyphosis. 
first movie adaptation of Frankenstein was a silent film produced in 1910 by a film production studio that was owned and founded by Thomas Edison. Uh, between the original novel and the many adaptations, any attempt to provide anything resembling a thorough coverage of the creature's life and times uh, threatens to take us well over any reasonable time limit, uh, or even any unreasonable time limit. Uh, we may end up in uh, you know, Dan Carlin hardcore history level episodes if we uh, try to do something that complete. So uh, today we are focusing our attention on the uh, Universal Studios adaptation directed by James Whale. Starring Colin Clive as uh, the good doctor, and uh, starring, of course, Boris Karloff as the monster. Uh, this was released in 1931. Of course, a discussion of the film would be inadequate without some background on the novel, uh, which it is an adaptation of. Uh, so, Christina, if you could uh, kick things off for us uh, and give us some background uh, about Mary Shelley and the novel that she gave us. Certainly, Mary Shelley wrote this as a 19-year-old woman, which is astonishing, and I think we should not even get started without saying she invented a whole genre. She, it's a woman who invented the genre of science fiction, and that is just something you need to let sink in for a moment, considering the way that science fiction is largely taken over by men writers, uh, male writers. She wrote it in response to a... Um, a challenge by a bunch of her friends, Percy Shelley, you know, she was married to Percy Shelley. Let's all stay up late at night and see who can write the best horror story. And um, she pretty much won the prize that night. And this book was born out of that, uh, that evening. And um, the second point that I want to make about the book is that Victor uh, is not a much so much a mad scientist in the book as he is a solipsistic one. Um, you know, people tend to think that this that the book is all about, you know, the mad scientist trying to play God, but it's really about a scientist doing his science poorly, and uh, he loves his work more than he loves the people around him, and, uh, and hence he creates this monster. Now, I mean, there's a couple of scenes that I think are really interesting, and I was wondering if there's any point where I can kind of refer to those. Would that be now or later that you would like that? Uh, now works, yeah. Okay. Well, first of all, there's this fascinating scene just before he's about to finish completing his work on the monster, and his father is trying to tell him to stop doing it. And uh, here's what he says about this is such an interesting passage in this book, and most people don't read the book. The proliferation of Frankenstein in culture, as you mentioned, all those different proliferations and iterations of Frankenstein, they're so unlike the original is to be almost comical. But here's what Victor Frankenstein says about his own work that his father had warned him not to do. He says, I then thought that my father would be unjust if he ascribed my neglect to vice or faultiness on my part, but I am now convinced that he was justified in conceiving that I should not be altogether free from blame. A human being in perfection ought always to preserve a calm and peaceful mind and never to allow passion or transitory desire to disturb his tranquility. I do not think that the pursuit of knowledge is an exception to this rule. If the study to which you apply yourself has a tendency to weaken your affections and destroy your taste for those simple pleasures in which no alloy can possibly or no alloy can possibly mix, then that study is certainly unlawful, that is to say, not befitting the human mind. And listen to this. 
He says, if this rule were always observed, if no man allowed any pursuit whatsoever to interfere with the tranquility of his domestic affections, Greece had not been enslaved, Caesar would have spared his country, America would have been discovered more gradually, and the empires of Mexico and Peru had not been destroyed. So that's a quote from the book. That's what he Interesting. from his father um, and should have obeyed. But instead, he proceeds yeah. to create the monster, which in effect, uh, he creates what is really actually a nice person. I mean, the monster is not mean when he first comes out of his being created. Uh, he, Victor becomes horrified with the creation. He thinks it's beautiful and wonderful right up until he opens his eyes. And then it's at that point that he decides that it's disgusting and horrible. And it's the, the next thing that I wanted to, to mention was he goes to sleep and has this dream about Elizabeth turning into his dead mother in his arms. Okay, and that's Freudian as it gets. And then this is, this, this is what happens. He wakes up from sleep because the creature comes in, and here is this scene. It's very short. He, he, I beheld the wretch, the miserable monster whom I created. He held up the curtain of the bed, and his eyes, if eyes they may be called, were fixed on me. His jaws opened, and he muttered some inarticulate sounds, while a grin wrinkled his cheeks. He might have spoken, but I did not hear. One hand was stretched out, seemingly to detain me, but I escaped and rushed downstairs." Well, there's no evidence whatsoever that the monster was trying to detain him or hurt him. He grinned at him, you know, under the curtain of a bed. It's, it's almost infant-like in a, in a weird kind of way. And so, but then, you know, he just decides I can't abide by this creature and runs off. And, of course, the so, thing that's so interesting about this is the creature does prove himself to be pretty friendly, wants to, just wants a family, basically, and tries to, you know, make uh, make a family out of this uh this family he finds in the countryside and that's a big part of the book that nobody ever talks about well i would like to uh point one thing out that i found very amusing that frankenstein like many grad students uh his father thinks he should uh give up and do something much more worthwhile with his time so he has that in common (laughs) with grad students everywhere what are you doing with your life you could be doing so much more why are you wasting your time True. Well, you know, this. I think it's important, too, that uh, we recognize that there's a kind of a feminist core to this book, right? Victor Frankenstein is trying to reproduce human beings without women. So there's both this fear of feminism and fear of the feminine and a general fear of otherness, right? So he, Victor likes his science to be theoretical, um, but as soon as he actually succeeds in creating this other being, he can't abide by its otherness, and he rejects it. Right. So I think that's fascinating. It is, especially, uh, I mean, if we're going to you know, jump ahead a little bit and start talking about movie adaptations, uh, how that uh, same theme comes back to us in Bride of Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Um, the... Uh, uh, the, the 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 character oh I, I should have written this down I believe it's Doctor Petraeus uh, is his name uh, so in Bride of Frankenstein uh, the doctor is he, he's given up his research he's not going to do it anymore uh, until an old uh, mentor of his shows up uh, and uh, this old mentor is he's even more twisted and obsessed and weird than uh, than Frankenstein is <clears throat> and one of the things that he keeps going on about 
uh, is how this is a new way to uh, you know to, to people the world uh, to yes. cr- to be fruit. He actually he he invokes the phrase. He said he says uh, to be fruitful and multiply. Uh, just now we're going to do it by science. Mm-hmm. And that's go, that's in the book as well. That's in the original novel as well. Ah, yes. And he he has this idea that he's going to create a superior, of course, uh, group of human beings than what nature can produce. Right. And you know, everything is going to be so hunky dory now because we're going to do it through technology. Where have we heard that before? <laughs> well, oh, yeah, I'm sh- nowhere, I'm sure. <laughs> Well, what I was uh, thinking, and again, you may be, uh, I may be uh, jumping in a little bit early here, but when we're talking about we're going to populate this through science and everything, the thing that it really popped out for me in the movie is when we have the when we have the assistant Fritz going to get the brain, which first of all I I had never seen. Uh, Frankenstein until I watched this. I'd seen Young Frankenstein many times. Frankenstein. Young Frankenstein many times. Froderick! <laughs> I know. Froderick Frankenstein. And so that whole part in where in Young Frankenstein where the assistant, Igor, gets an abnormal brain, that was so ridiculous. I was like, oh, this is just something Mel Brooks made up. The idea yeah. that that was in the original. And the thing I thought was very interesting about that is given the time period... To me, that spoke a very strong um, message of eugenics mm-hmm. because it is not, it's not, the monster didn't turn out this way because of any, of anything, oh, that this was just a horrible, horrible thing that he should have done, which is obviously right. the message of the actual novel. It's right. not that. It's because of a bad brain did this. Yep. It's yep. a bad brain did this. It's not, and so, you know, if we could have just gotten it right, you know, maybe this all would have been okay, but this, you know, oh, it's just a bad brain. Some people are just always criminals. There's a very strong eugenics um, message there. Yeah. And I thought I was really, because I had never seen the movie from beginning to end either, and I was shocked by that. I thought, oh, yeah, that's really, that's great. And now we can excuse the fact that of his behavior being this way, you know. Yeah, we keep bouncing back and forth between the nature nurture thing with this. Mm-hmm. So yeah, is the um, uh, is uh, the creature uh, violent because he got a rotten brain, or is the creature violent because uh, I mean, in the film anyway, the moment that uh, he was brought to life, uh, you know, Doctor Frankenstein locks him in the basement, keeps him away from the light, and yep. uh, Fritz uh, constantly abuses him. Yep, yep. So it's, and of course, you know, and in the movie we've got the, uh, we've got a whole bunch of indications that uh, along with the book, if uh, if the creature had just been treated properly, he would have been fine. He's kind of a sweetie. Right. Yeah. In fact, the book makes that abundantly clear. Yeah. Um, But the movie, uh, it's so interesting because his abuse at the hand of Fritz, who is, uh, you know, nominalized and marginalized in his own existence because of his, you know, looks and and is almost uh, as animalistic as the creature he's torturing. Exactly, and so it's almost like this: I'm going to beat down on the person who's lower than me, kick somebody who's lower than me. Exactly. So, yeah, there's a little bit of that coming through there as well. My exact notes from watching the movie: I, I'm pretty sure I, I'm not allowed to say the word that I actually wrote down, uh, <laughs> but my the gist of it is Fritz. 
Fritz is a jerk. Like, that's just, that's my note about Fritz. Like, Fritz is a yes. jerk. Oh, yes, he certainly is. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, and then, you know, when we do the sequel, when we do Bride of Frankenstein, the same actor, Dwight Fry, comes back uh, as, as another uh, henchman, another uh, lab assistant, uh, who it, we're... It's pretty strongly implied that uh, that character is actually going out and murdering people to acquire parts. Oh, wow. It's been a long time since I've seen Bride of Frankenstein, so... It's so weird. Yeah. Uh, the, the the goofiness just kind of gets ratcheted up. I mean, I'll bet. Uh, it's often put on lists of sequels that were better than the original... Uh, oh, yeah. Some of it, some of it was just—it's a little too off the wall. I mean, it's, uh, if you if you've seen it at all, you you might remember Doctor Petraeus's uh, sort of you know that that weird scene where he's got these tiny little homunculi in jars. Oh, uh, like you know, he yeah. is, he has actually created people, but he's not as good as Frankenstein because they're pint-sized, uh, and so he walks around with these tiny with like you know, it's like four. Four tiny humans in jars in his bag, uh, because he's not quite skilled enough to make them full size yet, and it's oh. just weird. Yeah, that's some weird stuff. Yes, it is. So, you know, speaking of changes, the, the, that things that uh, get altered here. So, so since no adaptation is 100% faithful to the source. Uh, Sarah, if you could be our guide in this, uh, what are some of the major differences that we see uh, between the novel and the film? So the first thing that when I was watching it uh, that threw me off multiple times was the change in our main character's first name. So his yes. last name is still Frankenstein, but his first name for some reason is Henry. And then he has a friend whose first name is Victor. Mm-hmm. And instead that, of Clairval, yeah. Yes, and so yes, and so they switched <coughs> the, the name of yeah, yeah they switched the name of the of the friend, and I could not, and it just confused me because that that seems like such an arbitrary thing to change unless there is a sense of like Henry. Okay, we want to make this a little more anglicized mm -hmm. as opposed to Victor. That that was the only thing I could think of that might that. Uh, might be the cause of that, but I was significantly confused because it's like, no, because I would be watching it. It's like, no, Elizabeth is supposed to end up with Victor. Maybe he, <laughs> like, I was having these weird, like, <laughs> imaginings of how the plot was going to twist and he was going to be adopted and become Victor Frankenstein because it just seemed like such a, an odd thing to change. Um, one agree. of the other, one of the other issue uh, uh, changes that you have is in the novel Nobody knows that uh, our main character Victor has done this. He does it uh, in secret at the top of in his in his what I presume is very uh, poorly lit grad student apartment with his with the bad Wi-Fi and all that stuff that he would have had, <laughs> and you know just stacks of like comic books in the background, all that stuff. Hey. And, <laughs> no judgment. I'm just making I'm just making an accurate description of what grad students apartments are like. Uh, you know, there might be some hand-painted miniatures that he had back, in, you know, in a case. Absolutely. And so what he does in the movie is he hit the people who care about him, you know, come up and 
his friend, like his his friend knows that he's done this. His, uh, I guess for lack of a better term, like graduate advisor uh, knows that he's done this. And so there, there's much more community about him um, mm-hmm. in this than he is much more alone uh, and does not share anything in the novel. He really just takes the whole burden of kind of trying to bear it onto himself where he has a community of people trying to help him and work with him in the movie. Uh, another difference in the novel, his uh, bride, who is also his cousin, is actually murdered, whereas in the uh, in the uh, movie, she is just, you know, we don't see what happens, but there's just this sense of like, okay, so something's happened. She's very artistically laid out and draped. Her her hair is you know all over the place, and so something yep. has happened to Elizabeth, but she's not killed. Uh, you have the creature actually actively drowning a child instead of saving a child from drowning like you have in the novel. He does not ever uh, acquire the ability to speak like he does in the book. And there's no sense of, in the, of vengeance because obviously in the novel he, he's very upset uh, about being created and being left. He has no purpose. He has no community. And he sees all the community that his creator has and he mm-hmm. resents it. And so there's a real sense of vengeance that the creature wants against his creator. You have no sense that the um, that that the creature in the movie has any has really any deeper wants or desires, except some general interaction. He wants that, but that that vengeance, that drive, is is missing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so interesting too. The way that he kills that girl is just a bizarre scene. That was really weird. Well, did you watch the uh, the edited or the unedited version when you saw it? I don't know. What I, I watched whatever I could find on the internet. I don't know what I saw. Oh, well, okay. uh, there are different. Uh, I actually uh, read a. I checked out a book from the library, and when you're a librarian, it's very easy to get books. You just walk <laughs> outside your office and pull it off the shelf. It's super nice. easy. And so I, I got a book, and uh, we can put this in the show notes, but it's called Frankenstein, A Cultural History. And one of the things it talked about was the scene with the creature and the character who is uh, listed as uh, Little, Mar- Little Maria mm-hmm. is Boris Karloff and the director actually had uh, some significant arguments about how that scene was going to be played. Uh. Uh, the actor, Boris uh, Karloff, really uh, wanted him because they were kind of gently placing, if you remember, they're kind of gently placing the flower petals in the water and mm-hmm, walking the mm-hmm. boat. He wanted the creature to kind of gently pick up the character and kind of put her in the water and in the sense of like he saw her as this beautiful flower and he kind of wanted to just watch that as opposed, but the director, uh, Whale, insisted, no, you are going to physically pull her up and toss her I see. And so they, and you, so you can really see a difference of how each of them wanted this character to be presented. And apparently, according to the the book, that was something they 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 did have significant arguments about. And Karloff always would say, "He made me do it." Mm-hmm. Mm. That's fascinating. Okay. That's really really interesting. Because of course, Shelley's original vision was of a kind creature that is is vengeful because he's forced into that situation. Yes. He would not just kill anybody just for the sake of killing them. That would right. not be the point. So, yeah. and the thing about Elizabeth is a significant, a significant change because 
the the scene go back to my point about this being a kind of a feminist book at the core and that he uh, victor is usurping you know female female uh, reproduction the scene where elizabeth dies happens on their wedding night because victor instead of being with his wife on their wedding night is out looking for the monster who had said i will be with you on your wedding night victor because he's completely solipsistic, never occurs to him that, you know, his he might be after his wife, right? So while Victor is off looking for the monster, the, the monster comes back and kills Elizabeth. Um, you know, so it's just so significant, so, um, so clearly that Shelley was trying to say, this is a problem in the way that Victor is thinking about other people or not thinking about them. Right, everything, everything is going through him, Yep. And he he, and it's how it affects him. He doesn't see how this really affects anyone else. Um, so one of the other uh, grad student jokes I had that I would like to uh, insert here is that, like many grad students, uh, when uh, Frank when Frankenstein's research gets too tough, he just gives up and gets married. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I did note that notice that in the book that uh, that this that this this I'll I'll, I'll use your term the, the the solipsism that he's got that he he thinks that if he just ignores the monster he'll just go away <laughs> and you know, he oh yeah I'm gonna go to sleep yeah I, yeah this, you know, this is he does, he, he, does. He, he goes to sleep and you know, it's like if I'm, I'm gonna put my head under the pillow and then it'll all be yeah. gone and then uh oh you know the monster wandered off i think i'll just go because you know he's gone now so it yeah um yeah di- didn't think his plan all the way through he definitely did not think his plan all the way through no no he had, he had good ideas but a bad work ethic yeah <laughs> his research ruined his advisor's life. Yeah. Yes, it ruined a lot of people's lives. <clears throat> it turns out. What do you guys make of how much the movie makes of this whole like mob scene afterward? It was so long. Um, Is I'm this thinking... the first like pitchforks mob scene that we get in film? That I don't know. Oh, I don't know about in film, but it is something that's not in the books. Uh, in the book definitely um well because nobody knows that the monster is there except him yeah and so the idea that again you have this victor you in the in the movie you have this community that's kind of rallying around him all the time despite mm-hmm. the fact that he is a fairly horrible person i i actually was besides being a grad student he's also kind of a millennial like he just has his rich dad who just like lets him do whatever he wants and like never seems to take responsibility for anything <laughs> and so you just have all of this community constantly around him in the film, whereas, again, in the in the novel, he's kind of bearing all of this on his own because he's too embarrassed to let anyone know how badly he's messed up. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, and the, the, the length of the mob scene made me wonder, since this was 1931, um, and it was so clearly like, oh, he did it. There was no even attempt to figure out whether the monster was guilty or how culpable he was for the death. It was just like, there he is, let's go get him. I was wondering if there wasn't some sort of um, comment about, uh, you know, Nazi Germany or, you know, something going on with this whole mob rule kind of thing. Mm. Um, I know. I just wondered what you guys thought about the length of that scene and the kind of um, 
you know, they're just cruel. They're just, yeah. they well, the burn down makes, the windmill. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, the thing it makes me no. think of is less of a Nazi Germany and more of a, a Southern, like, hey, we found an African-American dude. Well, he yeah, must have been, the, like, that's really what it hearkened to, but I'm from yeah. Texas, so maybe that's what I think of a little no. more. But I that's, thought of that, too. Yeah, um, that's what I thought of first when I saw it. Well, I'm from so, Alaska, and that's what of, I thought. Yeah, well, I've thought a lot of uh, Southern novels and a lot of Faulkner novels, and there's one novel that, you know, Light in August, that has exactly that scene and, uh, you know, lynching and burning. and You know, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I'm wondering if they're trying to make a comment about something. It's very interesting. Yep. So speaking of comments that we're making and then the, the the messages, so um, uh, so the next one's to you, Christina. One of the reasons that we're covering Frankenstein here in the Book of Nature podcast, as opposed to some of the others, uh, is the connection to science. Uh, what is this message that we're given in the film, uh, and uh, how has Frankenstein, the term uh, and the character, how has this worked its way into our public discussions about science? Well, as I mentioned at the outset, first of all, inventing the genre of science fiction is an unbelievable feat for this 19-year-old woman. And the the interchangeability of Frankenstein with the monster, the fact that a lot of people think the monster's name is Frankenstein, has always been one of the, the long of cultural effects um, on our way of thinking about science, our way of thinking about the mad scientist, you know, we interchange those two within the in their present cultural imagination. And so one could say that science fiction has always more or less been on the side of, hey, wait a minute, this guy might be crazy, you know, <laughs> might be like Victor Frankenstein, might be a monster, might be doing something that's not, in fact, good for us, uh, as opposed to the general view of science and technology that is permeating our culture, which is to say it's good. You know, but but in the realm of of the cultural imagination, the monster has turned into all kinds of other things, from terminators to you know cyborgs, uh, Cylons, and just the like, uh, and all because of this hubris, this Frankenstein-like hubris. Uh, I'm going to create life in my own image. And in the movie, it's really very well done because he's there saying my hands with my own hands, you know, I've created this. And uh, there are several scenes where you can just see that kind of pride. That's the version of Frankenstein that we get um, in our kind of current thinking about science and technology. Um, I think that's more than the actual vision that Mary Shelley originally had. Right. In, well, in the uh, film, we actually we, we even have a prologue. Uh, so we have uh, Edward yes. Van Sloan as uh, Dr. Ballman. So Edward and Van Sloan, same guy, same guy who played Van Helsing in the 1931 Dracula. Um, oh. You know, he, you know, the the actual line he's describing Dr. Frankenstein, a man of science who sought to create a man after his own image, without reckoning upon God. Yes. Right. So yeah, uh, it's it's not subtle. Well, the reason they actually added that was because, again, uh, according to uh, the book I read, that the studio execs were extremely afraid of offending Christians, if you can imagine such a thing. And so what the uh, studio execs did is they uh, consulted with the, um, and I'm going to get the terminology wrong, but I guess the, uh, the, the 
diocese of Los Angeles, and they um, uh, spoke with some of the priests, and the priests were like, okay, if we can put something in there like this to kind of disassociate the uh, disassociate and say, this is a bad thing that he's doing. We want to make sure everybody knows this. And so that would give the studio a little more of a buffer between the message they're presenting. And, but but yeah, that was, that was added um, at the insistence of the uh, diocese of, uh, or like the archdiocese of Los Angeles. Interesting. Um, cause all, you know, one of the, uh, another one of the changes that was made, uh, connected with the same issue was the famous, it's alive line. So yes. you know, what, what, you know, what everybody knows is, uh, you know, Dr. Frankenstein going, it's alive, alive. And he's kind of having a, yes. you know, come apart, uh, right there. Um, he's having a come apart. That's a good southern. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the original line, so the uh, the DVD that I watched was the restored version that uh, had the uh, the censored bits uh, cut out. Uh, the original one, uh, he's uh, he, you know, he's he's having his moment and he's going, "It's alive, alive! In the name of God, now I know what it feels like to be God." So yeah, that's he's kinda, what I saw. Yeah. yeah, that's the version I saw. <clears throat> so yeah, that part got cut, um, and I I just. Yeah, I, I always thought that was it, it was odd that they wanted it to be cut. I mean, especially yes. in light of what you just said about adding that scene, because it's kind of like the censors missing the point. You know, part mm-hmm. you know, part of the entire point is you know this the, 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 this message that um, and I, I'm even you know, I'm doing a I was a teenage werewolf riff because they put that one in there. You know, it is not for man to meddle in the affairs of God. So, so I mean, if that's the message, mm-hmm. having your hubristic mm-hmm. scientist, uh, who's just created the, the monster overtly say, now I feel like God, then, you know, it seems like that'd be the kind of thing you want to keep in. Yes. Uh, so, yeah. And, <clears throat> and that point is of course the message that has been consistently associated with Frankenstein, the story, the novel, the all of the iterations has been exactly that don't play god you know right. and to the point that it's gotten so it, it's just so inherently simplistic that i am kind of nervous about losing the original subtlety of shelley's creation um that's part of the reason why uh i'm speaking about this book a couple of times in to you know in 2018 which is the 20 200 excuse me the 200th anniversary of the novel um, and one of the places that I'm going to be speaking about it is at the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity, which is up the road here in, at Trinity International University. Excellent. And, uh, you know, bioethics has to have this conversation, and, and it has to be more sophisticated than we can't do this because we're playing God, right? Right. Our understanding of science and technology and why we make certain decisions needs to be a good deal more uh, thoughtful than just that kind of knee-jerk type of reaction for or against. Um, take, for instance, the since I've been talking about the feminine feministic core of the book, take, for instance, the technology that you're now developing where you can create life outside of a female womb, right? They're artificial wombs they're developing. How are you, as a bioethicist, going to determine whether or not we should try to create life in an artificial womb when your only way of thinking about a scientist who might do so is he's trying to play God, right? There's a lot more to it than that. 
Um, and part of what is is um, Shelley's genius is that that the problem is being disconnected from community and thinking that you yourself as a, as a scientist or a scientific community, um, you have all the answers or you can just do this on your own. You right. know, that part of the critique is so rich in Dolly's book and why, Sarah, it was so interesting that you're saying that the movie clearly gave him much more community than he has in the book. He's completely hiding in the book from everybody. And, and that's a huge part of the problem. Well, again, when I when I because I reread the book in uh, preparation uh, for the episode, and I honestly, I was as I'm reading this, I am I'm I actually started to feel extremely resentful against him About as a character, against him yes. as a oh, character yes. because he is just so incredibly selfish and privileged, yes. which is normally I normally do not like that term very much because. But in this instance, it's like, what? Your father's just going to send you on, like, a three-year tour through Western Europe as, you know, like, who? how are these people making money? <laughs> and, like, I was, like, I seriously was getting very annoyed about this. And I'm, I, I guess maybe because I'm jealous that my parents can't afford to send me on, like, you know, to just study wherever I want for, like, three years. And exactly. then, oh, what do you get back? And I also felt horribly bad for Elizabeth to be oh, the yes. one like, yes, I'm just going to be sitting here waiting for you and waiting for you and oh, waiting for yeah. you. And whenever you get <laughs> back, whatever you need, I will be there for you because the, the, and the thing is, normally I would really, I might criticize how Elizabeth is portrayed if a man had written it, because I would have said, well, she's so simplistic. She has no depth. She has no meaning. She's clearly this like manic pixie dream girl just for him to but a woman created this character mm-hmm. and so what do i and as a female what do i do with this you know because again i would probably criticize it if it were a male who had written this very simplistic character so how you know how to respond to it as a mm-hmm. since it's a female author and because I would say I do think that Elizabeth is pretty much the exact same in the movie and book in the sense that mm-hmm. we don't get a lot to her. It's not specifically mm-hmm. figured out that she's his cousin, but, you know. Well, I've got an answer for that, actually. Okay. Uh, Sarah, the answer is that it's told from Victor's perspective, right? He's telling all of this to Walton in the book. <laughs> yeah, okay. And so, you know, and the point is that Victor has no real relationship with her. Right. She she is um, just kind of a shell for him, uh, you know, and uh, and that's why, again, he's off on his wedding night looking for the creature instead of with his wife. So I, I think Mary Shelley is being not only obviously critical of him as a scientist, but critical of him as a husband, I think, even before being critical of him as a scientist. And so. You think about being married to Percy Shelley. Talk about somebody with a big romantic ego, right? Um, I mean, and she was also period. with Byron when she got the idea yeah. for it. So the, the two, right. the two most emo romantic poets in the yep. world. She's just chilling with. Yeah, yep. they're egomaniacs, and uh, they define, you know, women by relationships with them, not not as their own selves, as we Especially know. Especially Byron. Happen. Yeah, especially by especially by him. 
And, and we, we know that to be true because it wasn't really until Simone de Beauvoir started saying, hello, people, you know, all of these women characters are, you know, made in the image of what men would like them to be and need them to be, not who they actually are. And, and Shelley is giving us a portrait of exactly that kind of mythic creation of, uh, of Elizabeth by Victor. Elizabeth is who he wants her to be, not who she actually is. And that's why she ends up dead. I think that's what Shelley is saying. The other really interesting thing about Shelley is that she, um, her own mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, died while giving childbirth to, Ma- to Mary. The so original OG yeah. feminist. Yeah. Yes. And so, I, you know, that's all in her imagination somewhere, too, right? The, the, the real dangers to women in giving birth, uh, you know, the, the work that they do, and yet the men have all this, you know, sort of they're the romantic, creators with their powerful imagination where all women do is actually give birth to human beings and then die <laughs> well <laughs> right? and shelly she had lost a child about a year or so before yes. this yeah um, there's that the, too the child yep. had lived for about a week and or about four or five days and they hadn't even they hadn't named the child yet yep and well, of course in the 19th century especially the early 19th century that this we, happened a lot yeah and so death was just a part of, of life um, and women were just constantly giving birth to children that they could lose and and very likely would lose you know and I just, we just have no concept of this today um, it, it you know it's so fascinating to to see how much American culture just hides death and how different it had to be necessarily um, in both England and in America in the early 19th century Yeah, I was, I'm, uh, I'm I'm part of a reading group. We're uh, working our way through uh, Charles Taylor's *A Secular Age*. And, oh yes, uh, I read that. Uh, it it's kind of a big book. It's it's going to take a us a while. Book. Yeah, <clears throat> and uh, we just got through uh, discussing a section where uh, he's talking about uh, sort of that 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 very same issue that uh, this shift toward our current uh, situation involves. Uh, this growing distance that we're putting between ourselves and any of the, you know, sort of, you know, icky, unpleasant realities of our, you know, biological nature. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and especially dealing with things like death. So, yeah, I was reading this and I'm thinking uh, and thinking about how your your outlook on life uh, would be a lot different uh, if you have to go out and slaughter your own lunch, mm-hmm. and the family takes care of the deceased. And then yes, to, to add the uh, the sort of you know, considerably greater danger that is associated with childbirth, uh, yeah, it's a little bit of a different world. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. It's it's very much a different world. Uh, one of the things I wanted to uh, mention related to you, we had been talking about how how does what does this say about science? One of the things I found really compelling um, in the book was in the in the book about the movie, I should specify was how the idea that the idea that uh, Frankenstein uh, is a scientist reflects so much of the character design and how and the makeup because it's really interesting to see how uh, Frankenstein what the images and how he was drawn in previous books for illustrations and then the second this movie hits 
there is no other vision of artistic rendering of Frankenstein. It is. Yep. It's it, that. it, That's it. It is this. And the, um, the makeup artist, his name is Jack Pierce. He, uh, it talks about how he, he actually read the novel. And when I read that, I was like, hmm, it feels like he's probably the only person involved who really did. <laughs> <laughs> and so this is a direct quotation, um, of Jack Pierce when he was interviewed about it. My anatomical studies taught me that there are six ways a surgeon can cut the skull in order to take out or put in a brain. I figure that Frankenstein, who was a scientist but no practicing surgeon, would take the simplest surgical way. He would cut the top of the skull off straight across like a pot lid, hinge it, pop the brain in, and then clamp it on tight. That's the reason I decided to make the monster's head square and flat like a shoebox and dig that big scar across his forehead with metal clamps to hold it together. Ah. Uh-huh. <laughs> then it uh, goes on a little bit, and this isn't a direct quotation, but he talked about how he put the studs in the monster's neck as an inlet for uh, electricity, so the so like plugs we would use, and um, and it goes in a little more about uh, you know how they did some of the uh, the makeup, which you know they're telling talking about it like, oh, you soak that in like lead-based paint and just like applied it to his head for <laughs> oh, okay yep. you know um and so to me that's that's really kind of interesting and so i think you know we've been we've been talking about um boris karloff and how he portrayed it obviously is important and how uh whale directed it is important but i think the um uh, jack pierce the makeup artist who really envisioned that and created i mean that is that is equally important to how we see this uh creature mm-hmm. it's iconic too oh, i mean yes. it's just it's everywhere yep all right uh so uh could you tell us a little bit more about this sarah uh, and how the uh how the film has changed the way that uh, we see the story portrayed so uh i mean we, we have so many so many tropes so many visuals associated with frankenstein uh how much of what we associate uh with it, it has its origins in the film not the book almost Everything. And the other thing um, that we end up with is because there are so many iterations uh, or sequels to the Frankenstein movie that there are certain things that we now associate with the character that weren't even from this movie, but they came from later movies, such as we had the assistant, but the assistant is Fritz, the bad word that I won't say. Because, and when we first saw him, I was like, I was literally very confused because they're like, Fritz. And I was like, no, his name is Igor. <laughs> and I was like, why Like, why, why are they calling Igor Fritz? I did the same thing. And so you ha- so there are so many uh, kind of cultural touchstones that we associate with it. And the idea of how Frankenstein walks, how do people think that he walks? Or how do children think they walk- he walks? He walks with his... And I'm miming this, so y'all can't see me at all. But he walks with his hands kind of out straight, right? With his uh, arms out straight and his hands dangling. That's how we think Frankenstein walks. That doesn't actually come... That doesn't happen until several movies later in The Ghost of Frankenstein. Um, But we all associate that with Frankenstein, but it wasn't until several sequels later. And so I think... um, there's there's so much here and there's so much um like charles said at the beginning that to go into these in depth i mean it could be its own podcast watching each one of these movies and i think the thing that it it really does is one it had it definitely influences how we think of the idea of a mad scientist 
being mm-hmm. crazy, and then like the electricity that he's using, the la- the mm-hmm. lab sequence, oh yeah, um, all of this machinery, this that is that is completely iconic. And so when I I sat down to watch this for a first time. I really was confused because I had so many preconceived expectations about what this movie was and what I was going to see that it just threw me off when they weren't there. So, for example, it's like, oh, no, he 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 does this in a castle. No, he's doing it in a windmill. So yes. they're just they're very small things like that. And it actually reminds me of something that I read uh, when the new the new now several years old Jane Eyre movie came out. They were doing an interview about it. And they said that what most people know about the book Jane Eyre is from the last movie they saw. And so what most people know about Frankenstein, they know it from they know it from the movie. Mm-hmm. And so when you are now when you are putting these things out there for the first time and you're recreating something, do you as an artist, do you go back to the original? Because as far as I'm aware, there hasn't ever been a a very accurate Frankenstein movie. Now, I know there have been a couple, like there's an I, Frankenstein, there's one that was called like I, Victor. There was one that was called like Frankenstein. There are a couple that have come out that I have not seen. I believe that they were fairly well panned, but again, I haven't seen them. So I just, I know what I've been told and from reading reviews. And so I decided have, not to see them. Yeah, have, okay. You haven't seen the Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. There's one that's called Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. I have not seen that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Kenneth that Brown one is very different. Yes. Okay. Kenneth Brown, I'll try. Yep. And it really was kind of a dud. Well, and that, that happens. Um, and I think that's because sometimes the the idea of the monster, much like the monster in the novel, it goes off and it creates its own life, and the creators no longer really have control over it. Mm-hmm. That's right, and, and that's it one is, of the geniuses there. Yeah, it's right? it's morphing, it's creating, and the idea of Frankenstein interacts and influences on our popular culture in a way that. You obviously Shelley would never have been able to envision because did you really even have pop culture without a mass media and all of this That's stuff right. to be able to? And so the other thing that I did find uh, very interesting was this sense of out of all of our, our current myths um, that that are in the uh, kind of the Universal Monster Studios, this is a myth that is incredibly important to us as a culture. But it's mm-hmm. one that she completely created. They're, you know, mm-hmm. unlike vampires and werewolves that have centuries and centuries of history, this one came out of her own mind. And the idea that it's one of the few stories where the story about how the story was created is almost as famous as the actual novel itself. Yep. Bunch and, of friends gathered in this, you know, spooky place and dark night, you know. Yeah, it, it really is exactly stories. like what you think about it yep. um, when you when you picture it. Um, and as for how we we see it, um, or how Frankenstein associates that the, that origin of we we shouldn't be playing God. And um, as you you talked about it, that is something that we see in numerous future sci-fi films. The one that it keeps popping up in my mind is Jurassic Park. Yes. Mm. Yep. And you have the character of Ian Malcolm essentially saying, you know, life will find a way, and he's, you know, telling all this stuff, and then you have um, that wonderful scene 
um, where uh, the owner, uh, I forget his name, but he played by Richard Attenborough, is uh, speaking with um, is speaking with the female, uh, the paleobotanist. Uh, the characters' names are uh, slipping my mind, and he he's basically talking about how these are the things that he wanted and all the stuff he's talking about. I'm like, that's, that's Victor Frankenstein. Like those mm-hmm. are it's the same motivations mm-hmm. of wanting to play God, having the science and then interacting with it, but not being willing to accept the consequences mm-hmm. of the actions they're, they're doing. So they have these grand ideals, but then when like, Oh dang, this didn't work out the way I wanted, or it's different the mm-hmm. inability and unwillingness to accept it and interact mm-hmm. with their creation. Yep. And then their creations go on to, you know, kill, hurt, and maim everybody that they know and love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the thesis that I'm trying to work on in these talks that I'm giving is that it's an issue of control, right? Because the the whole point of the Enlightenment and its take on science through Francis Bacon, just for example, is we're going to use technology to control things. We're going to remove contingencies. We're going to make the world the way we want it to be. So it's the exact thing that they don't want, which is to lose control, right? Because the point of it is to gain control, and then they create this thing that they then lose control of. So that, the, to me, that's what why it's such a powerful myth within our culture, because those, those work at cross-purposes with each other. Right, and, and and that exactly is the uh, um, the Jurassic Park scene. Yep. Uh, he's That's right. uh, talking about how um, you know things don't work when you first try, but you keep trying again. He and he actually says everything's controllable. Uh, and then uh, yeah, the, uh, the 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 spared no expense. That's right, spared no expense. <laughs> and, they obviously did. They spared no expense except for better fences. You know. <laughs> That more than like five employees. Apparently, they cheaped out on uh, Nedry's uh, programming contract. Yeah, the salary. Yeah, and then then the uh, you know the the rebuttal was is when the paleobotanist says you never had control. That was the illusion. Exactly, exactly. But it's so fascinating that that's what is most desired, right? And I've been watching Westworld, writing a little bit about Westworld, and I saw the original film and. It's so funny because the, the the customers arriving at Westworld, this you know this place that's created for their entertainment, it's like with robots for fulfill their every desire to be shot or slept with or whatever. And and then the original film, which by the way the, was written by Michael Crichton, you know who did Jurassic Park. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, he's the the people are all saying there's nothing to worry about, you know, everything is perfectly safe and you know. We have everything under control, you know, which is, of course, sci-fi for you're about to completely, (laughs) (laughs) you know, so it's just so interesting, though, because, uh, you know, we want to have our entertainments and our life to be the way we want it to be. And as soon as things slip away, then we then they really slip away and go haywire. People just go nuts. So I don't know. Have you guys seen Westworld? Uh, I I have. Um. And that would be that would be another uh, excellent uh, topic for a podcast. It would, yeah, I'd enjoy that very much. Yeah, I've seen the movie in the first season of it, and and yeah, that's there's lots there. There would be lots to talk about. Mm-hmm. 
Because anytime you have the creation of an artificial intelligence, right, it's the same. It's moving along the same lines as uh, Mary Shelley's uh, creature. Right. And in fact, also uh, Jurassic Park would be a good topic as well. So. Yes. Agreed. Yep. Okay. Uh, so, uh, looks like uh, we're coming up on the, uh, the the one hour mark. So, should probably start moving in the direction of the door. Um, just uh, send this around the horn and see if uh, anybody has uh, anything further that they want to add. Uh, one thing I did want to talk about, I wanted to you know uh, go into the censorship just a little bit more. And again, mm -hmm. uh, the I found it odd some of the decisions that were made, and it it sort of uh, struck me like that whoever was in that in charge of censoring Frankenstein really didn't think think it through. Uh, so earlier we had this uh, we had the cutting of the line. Now I know what it feels like to be God. Uh, mm -hmm. We have to cut it because it's blasphemous. In a movie that we are explicitly saying is about how it's blasphemous to try and create life in our own image, so there's that sort of doesn't fit. <clears throat> uh, and then there's the censorship uh, surrounding the uh, the death of the little girl. Uh, in the uncut version, we have uh, you know the, the two of them playing, uh, you know, tossing flowers uh, into the into the pond. I don't remember if it's a pond or a stream, but into the water, uh, and. You know they run out of flower or flowers, so the monster tosses her into the water and she drowns. And we can see him confused and frightened and running away. Um, uh, it, but that was deemed to be too scary and violent. Uh, we can't have something that disturbing, uh, so we're going to cut that part. And in the edited version, all we get is uh, the little girl looks at the mo uh, at the creature creature and says, uh, "Do you want to play with me?" And he starts toward her, and the scene stops. And then the next thing we see of her is her father carrying her dead body uh, with her dress and her stockings torn, which, I i mean, they were trying to make it less disturbing. That made it more mm -hmm. disturbing. That's Good worse. Point. Well, one of the things uh, that you end up with uh, at the time is rather than there being like one sensor, there were, there were sensor boards for each individual state. And so the movie you saw in Kansas might be slightly different than the movie you saw in Chicago because there were different sensor boards that insist huh. on different things being taken out. Huh. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty funny. I, I, my last comment I want to make about the movie is I got, I laughed right out loud when Boris Karloff comes in, sneaks into Elizabeth's room and he gives this lecherous scowl uh, that I, it, it just looks so hilarious to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just thought, you know, there's no way to overcome the kind of cheesiness that many decades having gone by in Hollywood filmmaking, you know, it just it's just can't be scary in any way um, well, to me and I, anymore. I think one of the things that, yeah, I mean, we have so much more that we have seen and that we've been yes. exposed to. But one of the things that it talks about that, the um, that again, that book, and I'll give, we can put all this in the show notes for anyone who's interested, but that they actually, that there were people who fainted because this was such a scary movie. Really? That Yeah, that there are people in, I mean, not that it was like a widespread 
thing, but that there were there were documented cases of people like running out of the theater and like women wow. fainting because uh, this was just so well wow scary. Well, I watched it with my kids. So my, my kids are uh, four, six, and eight years old, and I've been trying to figure out a way to sort of ease them into the horror genre in a way that is you know age appropriate. Yes. <clears throat> and so I figured the, the Universal Classics could be a way to go. I'd already shown them uh, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, uh, and they loved it. Uh, except uh, my four-year-old, my six-year-old, was terrified of the Wolfman in the Abbott and Costello mm. movie. And watching their reactions to the 1931 Frankenstein, it was—I I don't know—maybe it says something about how you know jaded and desensitized. Uh, we've become their reactions were great uh so and also very individualized uh my eight year old uh you know her her reaction she she sort of immediately saw uh how the creature was a sympathetic character mm-hmm. and if they had just brought him into the light and treated him with love, mm-hmm. none of this would have happened and she's she's starting to get you know indignant. Uh, on mm-hmm. behalf of the creature, I'm going. Yeah, that's that's right. Um, that's right. Yeah, uh, my four-year-old just wanted to stomp around like Boris Karloff, <laughs> uh, and my six-year-old was terrified. Uh, I mean, really? she, she, oh yeah. Well, she she tends to have uh, rather extreme emotional reactions in every direction. Uh, but yeah, I mean, e- even the the reveal. I mean, it's supposed to be this scary reveal. We don't find it very scary, but. Um, uh, in the, the the reveal of the monster in the film, we see him. He's kind of turned around and is backing in the door, and he turns around and whoop, it's Karloff face Uh-oh. right yes. there. And yes. she jumped and ran across the room and dived into my lap and hid her face. Wow! And yeah, every time something monstery happened, she was scared. So yeah, you know the the fact that sort of you know we've been kind of marinating in Frankenstein influenced culture, so it's not you know it's not strange to us, right? Uh, but yeah, my you know my my kids, their reaction was great. I can't wait to show them the nineteen forty one Wolfman. See how they handle that. Great. Yeah. Well, I am always an advocate that uh, we should scare children. Um, one because I'm slightly mean but also i think that scaring children and letting them in my experience scaring children letting them know like hey there are real villains is is a really beneficial thing when i was younger and i used to nanny uh for a particular family i would get so frustrated because all of all of the villains for children's movies these days nobody nobody is actually bad or evil the bad guys are just kind of like common and so everything in like scooby-doo meets batman well you know well, he's not really bad, but, you know, he just, oh, if it weren't for those meddling kids, you know, because he, he's just dumb. And so when, and so there were, there were two boys, and at this time they would have been uh, about seven and six, and I was, and I was saying that, you know, well, I watched much scarier movies, and they're like, no, you didn't, you know, and so I was like, okay. So I brought over um, Sleeping Beauty, the, the Disney Sleeping Beauty, to show them. And, you know, Maleficent turning into the dragon just scared the ever-loving pants off of them. <laughs> Excellent. Because they never actually watched a children's movie with a really bad villain before. Like I said, everybody was just comically inept if you're the bad guy. Well, she wow. is an awesome villain. 
Yeah. So, um, I will say my one last thing, I guess that I will add uh, to the to the Frankenstein discussion, is anybody who really likes uh, who who likes the idea of okay this creative life and the other thing that I feel like it's very influential is not just in creative life but in artificial intelligence. How do we interact with that as people? I think that that all goes back to Frankenstein, and so. A, a very modern uh, version of this that I think would be excellent would be uh, the movie Ex Machina, mm-hmm. which came Ex out in 2015. Uh, it's a psychological science fiction. Um, it's a very, very small cast, very intimate movie that, mm-hmm. oh my goodness, will it mess with your mind? And, you know, you, uh, and so this idea of a, a created being, what rights does the created being have? How do people interact with it? What's the freedom that this uh, being should be given? These are very similar things, and it's updated in a very cool way. Yeah, I wrote a I wrote a short piece about Ex Machina for a magazine called The Crescent. You can find that online. I, I really appreciated that movie a lot, yeah. So if anybody's interested in my thoughts on Ex Machina, they're out there on the Internet, easy to find. Okay. I'll see if I can uh, find that and link it in the show notes. That'd be great. And, yeah, I'll I'll put that on my to watch list. It sounds good. Oh, you haven't seen it. I oh, have not seen good. Ex Machina yet. Yes. All right then. Okay, so, uh, listeners, uh, we're going to uh, head on out here. Uh, so the Book of Nature podcast uh, is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Brett Stack. Please contact us on our Facebook page. Send us an email to bookofnaturepodcast at gmail.com. Also, if you love the show, head over to iTunes. Give us a good rating. That'll help spread the word. Get us more listeners. Until next time, uh, this is Charles Hackney saying thanks for listening. Uh, And, of course, it's alive! Alive!